1: To the serialized audiobook *Contagious*, book two of the *Infected* trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. *Contagious* is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/contagious. The shooter. Dew could only take so much hemming and hawing. His Colt 1911 .45 caliber pistol lay on the shooter's table. It was loaded, hammer back, safety engaged. Perry Dossie stood there, in ear protectors and goggles, staring down at the weapon. Look, Dew, this is cool and all, but I just don't want to shoot, okay? Pick up the gun, kid, Dew said. I have a mean piss of a hangover thanks to you and I'm really not in the mood for this. You're embarrassing me in front of an entire shooting range. The range was empty, of course. Dew had rented the whole thing. Perry stared down at the forty-five. But what if I pick it up and, you know, I get the urge to shoot you? Dew pulled up his pant leg and drew his 38 i I'll stand behind you with this aimed at your back. If you even turn around funny... I'll kill you. Does that make you feel better? A little, Perry said. Dew would have laughed if the kid hadn't looked so damn serious. Perry kept staring at the 45. Dew sighed. (sighs) Now what? What if I, what if I listen to Bill? What if you kill yourself, you mean? Perry nodded. Look, kid, you gotta grab this thing by the balls. That's not funny. Shit, sorry, Dew said, just to figure of speech. Listen, Ronald Reagan, the greatest president that ever lived, he had a quote that sums this up nicely. If it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. So if you're going to kill yourself, let's stop fucking around and get it done. You're one of those sensitive hippie types, I see. I have a flower garden at home, Dew said, and I'm wicked good with a crochet hook. Seriously, you can't go through life afraid of this shit. Stop being a fucking pussy and pick up the goddamn gun already. Perry slowly reached for the 45, then drew his hand back. If you shoot yourself in the head, that only hurts for a second, Dew said. If I shoot you in the foot, it's gonna hurt a long time, so pick it up or say goodbye to a little piggy. Perry reached out again and picked up the 45 his hand shook violently at first so badly that do wondered if the gun might actually go off he was playing a dangerous game here do kept the 38 pointed at perry's back just in case just breathe easy do said point the gun and squeeze the trigger slow you should be a little surprised when it goes off and remember after you shoot remove the magazine and lock the slide to the rear that'll eject around so don't be surprised by that. Inspect the chamber and magazine, then lay it on the table and move your hands away, just like you did when we practiced. Yeah, but then the gun wasn't loaded. Just do it like I told you, and you'll be safe, okay? Okay, Perry said. Dossie pointed the forty five down the range and let out a breath. The pistol looked like a toy in his big hand. Do would have given Perry the thirty eight but he wasn't sure if the kid's finger could fit through the trigger guard. Dew waited. Then bang, the gun fired. A little smoke curled up from the barrel as both men looked down the firing range. The target was at 30 feet. Perry had hit the center ring, just to the left of the X. Nice shot, Dew said. I thought this thing was supposed to have a kick. Remove the magazine, lock the slide to the rear, Dew said letting his voice trail off. Perry nodded quickly and energetically. He carefully followed all of Dew's instructions, then set the weapon on the table in front of him. He raised both hands slowly off the gun to show he wasn't holding it. He looked relieved, like all the pressure was off, like he just lost his virginity. Okay, Dew said. So you didn't feel the gun jump in your hand? Perry shook his head. When I shoot it, I can feel it kick, but it's not so bad, Dew said. Strong as you are, I shouldn't be surprised you can't feel it at all. Um, Dew? Perry had a look on his face like he was afraid to ask a question. For fuck's sake, he had cut monsters out of his own body, had taken two bullets and kept on fighting, and he was afraid to ask a question. He doesn't want to look stupid, Dew thought. He doesn't want to look stupid in front of you. Spit it out, Dew said. You can ask me whatever. Um, squeezing real slow is cool and all, I guess, but I mean, if I have to use this for real, don't I want to fire faster than that? Dew smiled. Sure, that's a logical thing to ask. Not that you'll have to use one of these for real, but just in case, reload the magazine and fire off the whole thing as fast as you can, okay? We'll look at the target and you can compare accuracy. Then we'll talk about how to fire in different situations. Sometimes you want one accurate shot. Sometimes you want to lay down as much lead as you can as fast as you can. Okay? Perry smiled and nodded. A real smile for a change. Still looked hideous with the stitches, but at least it was genuine. Dew took three steps back. He casually pointed the thirty eight at the floor. But he wasn't about to put it back in the holster. Not yet. Perry loaded two more bullets into the magazine, inserted it, then thumbed the slide release so it clicked home. He pointed the weapon and fired off seven shots in less than two seconds. It sounded like a machine gun. Do watch the kid's hand move, or rather, he watched it not move. It might as well have been chiseled out of granite and bolted to the wall. Perry ejected the magazine, checked the chamber, set the gun and the magazine down, then raised both hands off it again in seeming slow motion. Dew stared downrange. He couldn't believe his eyes. He flipped the switch that brought the target back to the firing station for a closer look. Perry had put all six shots in the center ring. The center X wasn't even there anymore, just a big hole with ragged paper edges. Perry smiled and looked down at Dew. That's pretty good, right? Kid, are you fucking with me? Are you sure you've never shot before? The big man shook his head. No, sir. Dad wouldn't let me touch any of the guns, but I mean, it's only hand-eye coordination stuff, right? Like a video game. I've always been good at anything like that. Dew stared at the target. It made sense. Dossie had been an elite athlete, would have gone first round in the NFL draft, probably first overall, had it not been for the knee injury that ended his career. He was so strong he didn't even feel the 45 kick. He could just point the barrel accurately and keep it perfectly still while he emptied the magazine. Dew suddenly wondered if teaching Perry to shoot was such a good idea after all. If Perry could kill people with his bare hands, imagine what he could do with a weapon and plenty of ammo. Ugly Betty. Betty Jewell's body faced a dire situation. Half-form crawlers disintegrated, spreading apoptotic death. She was guilty of nothing more than being just old enough for her telomeres to shorten and suffer the minor damage that faces us all. Her telomeric breakdown wasn't as bad as her father's, of course, as he had been 26 years her senior. Had she been younger, maybe as little as five years younger, it would have gone better for her. Of course, better meant that more crawlers would have already reached her brain. Her brain mesh was thin, emaciated. It needed additional crawlers to fully complete the change and send the signal. Moore struggled to reach her brain, either dragging half-rotted bodies along her nerves or trying to move past the dissolving corpses of crawlers that had already shut down. These survivors reached out their pseudodendrites, grabbing, pulling, sending their pain signals to gauge the response. If Betty died, the crawler's mission failed so they fought the rot with counter-chemicals designed to neutralize the chain reaction. Her original infection spots were already a lost cause. There was too much apoptosis there to stop the process. The crawlers sent some of their number to stay at the edges, secreting the neutralizing chemical, trying to localize the damage and stop it from spreading. Inside these perimeters, the rot dissolved flesh and scored bone. That meant bad news for Betty Jewell's face. The crawlers didn't consider the face a priority. Eyes to see, yes. Mouth to breathe, of course. Those were important, as were her hands. Hands could use tools. Hands could use weapons. The crawlers used their collective logic to split into several groups. Some moved to the hands to try and save them. Some moved to the brain to try and achieve the critical mass needed for the neural net. Some to the eyes and ears and mouth To protect sensory input. A Betty who could not see, hear, or talk could not defend, and that wasn't a very useful Betty at all. Interference Chatter. That really was the best name for it. Perry heard chatter again. Coming from the south. South and east? Yes, the east. Somewhere out there, triangles were waking up. So far, he'd heard only snippets of thoughts, just a few syllables. The triangles didn't know how to talk yet. They had to learn that from their hosts' memories. How many were out there? Perry couldn't tell. He could never tell for sure. He'd picked up a few wisps that morning, like smelling something in your apartment. Something you smelled only if you turned a certain way, and then it was gone and you know that smell because you've smelled it before. You just can't remember what it is. It was that kind of familiarity. Familiar yet different. There was something else in those wisps. Something less random. More powerful, maybe? Perry knocked on the door to room 207. Dew answered. Hey, Perry, he said and smiled, almost as if he was happy to see him. Come on in. Perry followed him into the room. Baum and Milner were there, as was Amos, who had a bagel in one hand, a stack of papers in the other, and a laptop sitting on his legs. Baum and Milner stiffened. Amos's eyes immediately shot to the door. As soon as Perry moved into the room, Amos dropped the bagel, shut the computer, and ran out. Damn, that little guy is twitchy, Dew said. Yeah, Milner said. I can't imagine why. Perry stared at the smaller man. Milner, I'm standing right here if you got something on your mind. Baum laughed. You sure you want some? You look a little roughed up from your last go-round. Baum, shut the fuck up, Dew said. If you think you can take Dossie, I'll be happy to move all this stuff out of the way and you two can have at it. Baum stared at Perry and said nothing. Perry couldn't believe what he was hearing. Was Dew sticking up for him? Well, not sticking up, exactly, but calling Baum out to back up his mouth. Well, Dew said to Baum. Baum shook his head. I'm good. Then keep your pie holes shut, Dew said. Milner, you two. Now, Perry, what have you got for us? I'm hearing chatter, Perry said quietly. All three men perked up. Where, Dew asked. Perry shrugged. Not sure yet. Southeast is as close as I can get. Michigan again? Dew asked. Maybe Ohio. Perry shrugged once more. So why haven't you gone after it? Milner asked. Got in your fancy car and headed out. Because he and I have come to an understanding, Dew said. Perry's part of the team now. Milner laughed. Dew shot him a you're already on thin ice glare and Milner's smile faded. What's it sound like? Baum asked. His disdain for Perry suddenly gone. Can you pick out any names? Places? Perry shook his head. Not yet, but it's getting stronger. Just have a seat, kid, Dew said. And relax. It'll come like before. We'll get everyone loaded up and head in that general direction. Perry limped to a chair and sat. And right then, the chatter changed. Something's wrong, Perry said. It's getting quieter all of a sudden. Concentrate, Dew said. Maybe you have to focus. Doesn't work like that, Perry said. It's always on. I don't have any control over it. It's fading. I can't hear the chatter. What I hear now sounds like... well, it sounds kind of gray. He looked at Dew. It's gone.
0: Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Doctor Dan costs same as twenty bucks. The V-22 Osprey helicopter passed over the highway at a high altitude, then turned 180 degrees. It dropped closer to the ground and came in for a landing in the parking lot, putting the rest stop building between it and the road. As the chopper set down, Margaret saw the familiar sight of two nondescript semi-trailers parked in parallel. They had a different paint job from the one she'd left behind in Glidden. Brown and dented, another flavor of faux shabby industrial aside from the plastic extension connecting the two trailers, no one would have given them a second glance. I wonder if they got last year's model, Amos said. The Mobile lot must be jumping this time of year. The trip here had been a whirlwind. Once word came down that two bodies had tested positive for cellulose, Duke kicked the operation into high gear. Margaret, Amos, Clarence, Gitch, and Marcus were in the air within 15 minutes. Murray ordered radio silence for the trip. He wasn't taking any chances. An hour and a half later, their Osprey was touching down at this rest area in Bay City, Michigan. Margaret hadn't known there were more Margot Mobiles. Even with his inner circle, Murray still had secrets inside of secrets. In fact, now she wondered just how many Margot Mobiles existed. Certainly made sense to use multiple units. Driving the first set from Glidden would have taken 10 hours. Even moving them using cargo helicopters would have cost valuable time. With multiple units and multiple crews, Murray could lock down infection sites much faster. Margaret and her team hopped out and headed straight for the brown trailers. A man stood outside, wearing an Air Force uniform covered with a heavy blue jacket and a hat that flopped warm-looking flaps down over his ears. The man snapped a taut salute. Captain Daniel Chapman, he said. I'm not military, Margaret said. Neither is anyone else here. The salute vanished. Good. I hate saluting. He stuck out his hand. Dr. Chapman, call me Dan. Nice to meet you. Margaret returned the shake. Dr. Margaret Montoya, this is Dr. Amos Braun and Agent Clarence Otto. Agent of what? Dan asked as he shook the men's hands. Agent of the stars, Clarence said with a smile. It's not really important, don't you think? Dan nodded and held up one hand as if to say, sorry I asked, I should have known he led them into the Margomobile's computer room. It looked exactly the same as the one she'd left back in Glidden, save for Air Force logos on the flat panels and a coffee mug ring or two on the counter. Dan waited until Margaret sat, then stood behind her. Amos sat in the chair next to her, while Otto seemed to fade away into the background. How he could manage to do that in a 5x10 room, Margaret couldn't say, yet he did it just the same. We have two cases of infection, Dan said. Donald Jewell, age 42 from Pittsburgh, and his daughter Betty, age 16. Of course, I'm not allowed to know exactly what they're infected with. I just follow the procedures assigned to me. I'm happy to play along, but please don't feed me the company line about necrotizing fasciitis. If, however, you should choose to let me know what the hell's going on, I won't complain. What if that knowledge means you'll be sequestered for months? Amos asked. That or shot because you know too much. Then I might complain a little, Dan said, but I've always been a bit of a whiner. He pointed a small remote at the computer and clicked a button. Up on the screen, the Air Force logo disappeared, replaced by a picture of a man lying on icy pavement. He was in front of the rest stop building right outside the trailer. The man's clothes hung on his skeletal frame. A black skull stuck out from a loose collar, and something black had stained the pavement around him. This is Donald Jewell, Dan said. Security camera recordings show he pulled into this rest area yesterday at approximately 1,300 hours. There was a pretty solid storm at the time, freezing rain, so no one reported seeing him get out of his car. Not sure how long the body sat there before someone came across it. Best guess, 10 minutes. The guy who found the body called 911. State troopers were on the scene within 15 minutes. Did they touch anything? Margaret asked. Trooper Michael Adams wore surgical gloves to check for a pulse, Dan said. Finding none, he removed the gloves, left them on the spot, and had no further contact with the body. The daughter was still in the car. She refused to let Adams in. He saw sores on her face, so he called for an ambulance. She wouldn't allow paramedics inside the car either. At that time, the paramedics performed the swab test on the corpse. My team was stationed in Detroit, so the CDC called us. We were actually the ones to remove the girl from the car. How long have you been in charge of this rig? Three weeks, Chapman said. We haven't had much to do, to tell you the truth. He put his shoulders back, puffed up his chest, and spoke in a deep voice. Just play with the equipment and wait for a call. If you don't get that call, it's good news. If you get it, just be ready to do whatever it takes. Margaret had to stifle a laugh. Dan was doing a dead-on impression of Murray Longworth. That's uncanny, Amos said. Thanks, Dan said. You should hear my Gutierrez. It slays. Anyway, after the paramedics called the CDC, Trooper Adams and his partner evacuated the rest area and shut it down. They followed all the instructions line by line. Sharp guys. They were pretty impressive. They took pictures. He reached over Margaret's shoulder and clicked the computer keyboard. A series of shots flashed on the wall monitors, showing Donald Jewell's initial stage of decomposition, then gradually shifting to his current state. Wow, Clarence said. Those guys saw a lot. Any worry about them talking? Dan threw back his shoulders and puffed up his chest again. It's taken care of. They understand the gravity of the situation and the importance of secrecy. Seriously, Amos said. That's creeping me out. I'd laugh, Clarence said. Only I'm sure Murray has a camera in here somewhere and he's watching. Dan started nervously looking around the room. Oh, man, for real? Margaret reached back and tugged Dan's sleeve. Relax, he's kidding. At least she hoped he was kidding. Run the pictures again, she said. Dan did. How often do they take these? Every 15 minutes, Dan said, just like your instructions specify. Amos and Margaret exchanged a glance. What is it? Clarence asked. This guy decomposed more rapidly than anyone we've encountered, Amos said. Twice as fast as before, maybe even faster. Clarence grimaced. "'How about the others? We have names and addresses of everyone who was here at that time or came after?' Dan nodded. "'The troopers got everyone's ID, license plate, registration, the works.' "'Clarence,' Margaret said. "'We need to have Murray's agents get to every one of those people and run the swab test.' "'Yes, ma'am.' Clarence moved to the third computer chair and grabbed the phone. "'But Margo,' Amos said. "'It's not contagious.' Not from host to host, Margaret said. But the McMillans were infected later, remember? Whatever the vector is, it might be persistent, lying on clothes or hair. And looking at these pictures, the disease has mutated, at least to some extent. As far as we know, now it could be contagious. Amos nodded. I'll better safe than sorry, I suppose. Everyone followed precise biohazard procedures, Dan said. We treated it like it was a strain of Ebola that could do a stutter step, fake you out, then jump in your pants if you weren't careful. Mr. Jewel's remains are in the Trailer B body locker. Each piece of clothing is in a separate biohazard container, in case you want them. Clarence put the phone on his shoulder and looked back at Amos. Twenty bucks says Dr. Dan put each sock in a separate bag. You're on, Amos said. Dan smiled. I even labeled the sock bags left and right. Sorry, Dr. Braun. Call me Amos, you incredibly diligent and overwhelmingly anal-retentive young man. Amos pulled the folded 20 from his pants pocket and handed it over to Ada without looking away from the screen. The young doctor impressed Margaret. For someone who has no idea what's really going on, you did a hell of a job, Dan, she said. Looks like we're ready to rock. Let me see pictures of the girls' remains. Dan seemed surprised. Didn't you get the reports on your way in? Margaret shook her head. No, Radio silence the whole way. Why? What's with the daughter's corpse? She's not a corpse. She's alive, Dan said. She's in the containment chamber. Are you there, God? It's me, Chelsea. A conversation was taking place. One half of this conversation hovered 40 miles above the earth, straight up from the diseased oak tree in Chuy Rodriguez's backyard. The other half sat on the floor of her bedroom. On her left rested a pile of Barbies, brats, and other dolls. On her right sat a similar but smaller pile. As she talked, she would pick up a doll from the pile on the left, take off all its clothes, hold the doll in her lap, then draw on it with a blue Sharpie. She drew little triangles. They were very pretty. She finished with a doll, put it on the pile on the right, then grabbed another with her left hand. Chauncey, do you like ice cream crunch bars? I have never had one. I could not eat them. Oh, Chelsea said. Then what do you eat? The orbital directed some processing power to answer this. Being inanimate, it had endless patience for her questions, which was fortunate because the questions indeed seemed endless. Most often, it simply didn't know the answer. It had accumulated a good bit of knowledge from the triangles interfacing with dozens of human hosts, but it still took time to make associations between language and fact. I eat gravity. Oh, Chelsea said. Is it good? The orbital worked to associate her use of the word good. Good meant many things to humans. It could mean a self-profession of capability. It could mean the socially acceptable course of action. It could mean a field goal. The orbital searched to compare it with food consumption, Many stored host images came up, things like barbecued chicken, chocolate cake, mashed potatoes. That is what she meant. Without the gravity processors, the orbital would plummet to Earth. So it applied the correct definition and answered. Yes, it is very good. Oh, Chelsea said. Chauncey, who is your favorite Detroit piston? I do not know. Oh, Chelsea said. Chauncey, are you God? The Orbital accessed images, an elderly human with a big white beard, a younger human with long hair and a short brown beard, glowing heads, love, hatred, divine intervention into human lives, punishment, wrath, destruction. The Orbital cross-referenced these images against catalogued emotional responses and determined that this was something it could potentially use to motivate hosts. Why do you think I am God? You know, because you can talk in my head and stuff. People can't do that, mostly. What do you think of God, Chelsea? Chelsea sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We go to church most Sundays, except during football season, sometimes we don't. I love God because God loves me. The orbital called up more images. He examined the signal coming from Chelsea's brain as she talked of God and Jesus. Yes. This was a powerful motivator. Chelsea, if God told you to do something bad, would you do it? Chelsea stopped drawing on her Barbie. She looked at the wall, just kind of staring out, tilting her head to the right as she thought. Daddy says sometimes God tests us, but God loves us, and he wouldn't ask us to do anything bad. So if God asked me to do something, then it couldn't be bad, so I would do it. Yes. Guess what? Yes, I am God. Oh, Chelsea said. Okay, can I still call you Chauncey? Yes. Chelsea picked up her doll and started drawing blue triangles. Chauncey, do you like Snickers or Twix better? The orbital continued to answer questions. The door to her room slowly opened, and Mommy peeked her head inside. Chelsea, baby, how are you feeling? Okay, Chelsea said. She picked up another doll and took off its clothes. Chelsea, what are you doing in there? Just drawing triangles on my dolls and talking to Chauncey. Oh, Mommy said. Your special friend Chauncey. Uh Uh-huh, Chelsea said. She drew a blue triangle on this doll's forehead. Very pretty. What are you talking to him about? Oh, you know, Chelsea said. Flowers and my pink dress and what's the best cartoons? And basketball, and gravity, and ice cream, and God, and dollies, and okay, honey, Mommy said, cutting Chelsea off. Mommy was laughing a little. Chelsea didn't know what was so funny. You keep talking to Chauncey, Mommy said. Are you drawing on all your dolls? Is that a permanent marker? Don't ruin them, honey. I'm not ruining them, Mommy, Chelsea said. She picked up a blonde Barbie with blue triangles on her arms, legs, and face. She held it up so Mommy could see. They're not ruined. I'm making them better. I'm making them pretty. Okay, honey, Mommy said. You come get me if you need anything, okay? Okay, Mommy. Mommy closed the door. Chelsea set the Barbie on the right-hand pile, then grabbed another doll from the pile on the left. You have been listening to Contagious, Book Two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment.